you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please open up with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you can't find a copy of God's Word, there should be one around you, or any mobile device should be able to help you. They're pretty nifty like that these days. Today we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. A fun text for us this morning. So as we jump back into the book of Acts, it's important to get our bearings a little bit. We recognize that we are coming back in after a climax of one of the most important weeks of ministry for the life of the early church. And so we have seen the apostles, Peter and John, heading into the temple gates on mission. And we see quickly that they find a man who has been paralyzed and crippled from birth over 40 years, we'll find out. And then in a miracle, he is healed. And then the apostles use that as an opportunity to start preaching about the Jewish Messiah. And so they start preaching about how the Messiah that the people of Israel had been waiting for has finally come. And even though that person had been rejected, even though they rejected their Messiah, that there was salvation by faith. That to the people of God, that if anyone believed, they could have their sins forgiven. Now, it's important also to remember where Peter and John are. They're standing outside of the temple. What is a temple? It is a representation of God's presence with God's people. People would come all over to offer prayers. The temple is a very important place for the religious and the ceremonial and the, the civil life of the entire community. People would come to engage in business. They'd meet people there. But it's also a very important place for one group of people, the religious leaders. The religious leaders oversaw everything that happened at the temple. They kept a tight watch on the temple. They were the stewards of God's dwelling place. Nothing can happen and nothing should happen unless they know about it without their permission. So you can understand how awkward it was that now there is this man who is healed on their front doorsteps without their prior knowledge, since everyone would, of course, point to the God of the temple as the source of the power for the event. And furthermore, what we find happened is that not only is a man healed in an unauthorized way, but we also have this uneducated, unaccounted for, unknown man, Peter, who now starts preaching. It is a bit of a crisis that is unfolding for those who have a stake in what's happening. Peter stands up and starts preaching without authorization, and he starts making claims about the religious leader's God and the religious leader's faith. He was now miseducating the people, announcing how the religious leader's God, who lived in the religious leader's temple, had worked this miracle of healing through the religious leader's long-awaited Messiah. But here's the problem. <laughs> who, who's the man that they're pointing to and talking about? It's the man that they just publicly executed a matter of months ago. If the religious leaders thought that Jesus' death was a clean cover-up, they were greatly mistaken. The Jesus problem is back. But this time, there's now more unauthorized people who are causing problems. And what can you do with the unavoidable evidence of this man who's been healed? I do a quick cover-up again. Now they arrest them. Verse 1 through 7. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? You have to understand the precarious situation that Peter and John now find themselves in. <laughs> they know that this group, this body of leaders, has no qualms about skirting around justice. 
Both of them, if you remember, were in close proximity to Jesus' own kangaroo court when people were bringing accusations to Jesus. It's probably hard not for them to look at the exact same people and imagine what they did to Jesus about months earlier, bringing false charges and spitting in his face. But Peter and John have a night to think through what's going to come next. They have time. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, they are ready. They're ready to be witnesses. Because of the resurrection, for the sake of Christ, for the salvation of others, for the glory of God, they are ready to take a stand, go toe-to-toe to opposition. That's an important question. What about you? They're ready to take a stand. What about you? One of the main things that we'll be addressing this morning is a challenging truth that Scripture expects that the Christian life should be and will be defined by certain forms of conflict. If we understand the good news of the gospel, we recognize that we have a message that needs to be shared. We have a responsibility to be witnesses of Christ and of his resurrection. We are witnesses. But when we come to terms with that fact, if we truly are witnesses like the early church is, and there are many people who are not going to like our message, they will oppose our message, they will oppose your message, and in opposing your message, they are opposing you. So whether you would like to admit it or not, whenever you signed up to be a Christian, you signed up to a life where God expected and required that you would step in to certain conflicts. Not only that, you need to recognize that as a Christian, God also calls you to a certain form of confrontation. You have a responsibility to be confrontational. You need to shake the status quo up in people's lives. You need to take a normal conversation and bend it into a gospel conversation. You need to confront that sin that no one at home, no one at work, no one on that Facebook page, that never happened, or even no one at, war, at, at church. You need to confront that sin that very often is easy to overlook. In in a loving way, you need to be ready to stand in the gap when you know someone is headed towards the sin and the misery and the destruction that life can sometimes bring us. So if you are a Christian, and if you are fulfilling all of your responsibilities that I think Scripture lays out for you, you will face conflict. Not only that, at times you will be required to be confrontational. And if God expects this from us, then we must be prepared to march right into it. And I think that's the main idea of our text for this morning. I'm a main idea type of guy. I want, to know very, I want you all to know very clearly where I'm going. Here, I think the main idea for our text is this morning. Because Jesus lives, we must be prepared to confront others about Jesus' authority and salvation. Because Jesus lives, we must be prepared to confront others others about Jesus' authority and salvation. In our text today, I'm going to show you three things that we must be ready to do that I think if we're going to fulfill our responsibility to be confrontational in the same way that the apostles are here about the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Three things, pretty simple. Because Jesus lives, point one, we must speak. Point one, we must speak. Because Jesus lives, we must speak. So after an overnight stay in the prison, we see this in verses 5 and 6, the religious leaders gather the apostles, Peter and John, before the high priest's religious court. Seated in the audience, you have various members of the high priest's family, you have the elders, you have the scribes, and right in the middle, Peter and John. Now again, the religious leaders have found themselves in quite a precarious situation, haven't they? Well, we're the Peter and John found themselves in a precarious situation. So did the religious leaders. I mean, technically, Peter and John have not done anything wrong. (laughs) Rather, it was a good thing. A man was healed. But yet, 
They can't let Peter and John stop preaching about Jesus. And now, when they're standing in front of them, they just put them in prison. We see back in verse 2. If you took look over to verse 2, we actually see that the religious leaders are frustrated because they keep bringing up Jesus. The apostles are bringing up that cockroach, which never seemed to die. We've dealt with this problem. Why are they back? Why is Jesus' name sounding throughout the temple again? It also must not escape their notice that this religious group was quite feisty. This new batch of ruffled preachers had a radical message. The Messiah, the one that all the Jews are waiting for, had risen from the dead. And if the Jews start listening to this message, and then the people start following this new group of leaders, and then the Jews lose everything. They lose all of their authority. They lose all of their power. The leaders need this messianic fervor to end. But not only that, they know that this group has about absolutely no qualms about sticking their face They're sticking their hands into the face of these religious leaders and saying, you killed Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. What's the implication? You are guilty. You killed your promised one, and now God is against you. But this did not stop the religious leaders from finding a problem with the situation. They ruled the temple, so they thought. They controlled the religious life of the people, If everything is under their control, then these preachers lacked the proper authorization. They were unauthorized. It was this strange power. I think that's the main reason behind their question. By what power or by what name, verse 7, do you do this? It's ultimately a question of authority. Who gave these men the authority to do this great miracle here? If you are unauthorized, it is unauthorized acceptable. Now, if you imagine, imagine you're in Peter and John's head. What do you think is going on? I, th- I think they've, they've seen this script before. This could go badly. Peter and John personally witnessed what this court was capable of, right? They saw them betray Jesus on no charges. They saw what started off on People not being able to make coherent arguments to Jesus dead. (laughs) What could happen to them? I mean, Peter and John have a few options. They could just dodge the question and return to the streets. You know, if everyone's seen Zootopia, you know, Nicholas Wilde, the fox, main character, he makes the comment, you know, just respond to their question with your own question and answer that question. Where are you preaching? Today? No, we've, we've been in jail. We haven't been preaching and just... Keep going. Or where they could just soften their message, right? Well, we were doing so much good work here. We don't want to lose our, our platform, right? We don't want to risk all this influence and everything that's going on well. I mean, we can just take the edge off our ministry just a, a little bit, and, you know, but then we can keep going. I mean, we have, like, we have salaries, six-figure salaries and big buildings to pay for and loans. I mean, we can't just stop everything now. Wait, sorry. That's, that's the wrong people. My bad. Um, But Peter does none of those things. They don't duck, they don't dodge, they don't diffuse. Rather, the apostles make the conversation as confrontational as possible by focusing the message on Jesus and on the religious leader's rejection of him. They take this train and point it right towards confrontation. Read verses 8 and 12 with me. 8 through 12. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How was the man healed? They don't duck, they don't dodge, they don't diffuse, they go straight at it. 
by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. I make a few observations about Peter's response here. I think in verse 9, Peter's actually making a comment about the illegitimacy of his arrest. <laughs> you just look at it. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed, who gets arrested for a good deed? Only someone who you already have a problem with, right? Also, Peter centers his comments upon the saving power of Jesus. I think to make this point, you have to recognize, look down at verse 9. See that word at the end? It's the word healed. It's actually the same Greek word at the end of verse 12. It's saved. And so you were talking about interpretation, all these things earlier. Come to Sunday school class. It's a good time, 930, right here. But it's important, it's interesting to look that if you go to verse 9, the word healed is actually the same word as saved that's being applied in a physical context. And so that's what makes the connection, that this man has been healed, saved by Jesus, and there is salvation now in no one else. That doesn't make much sense. Salvation as a physical thing? Unless you recognize that the purpose of salvation is future resurrection. Jesus, when he rose from the grave, is bringing in a salvation that's not just justification, being cleansed from our sins, but being made new. One day, all of God's people will dwell with him in new resurrected bodies. And so it makes sense here that he can use the word saved for healing because he's making a connection about what's going to happen later for all of God's people. You see this power now, more is coming. Another comment to make, that Peter goes right after the religious leader's rejection of Jesus. I mean, this is, this is very intentional. Like, look at verse, at verse 8. How does he address them? Rulers of the people and elders. And then go to verse, verse 11. You who rejected Jesus are the builders. You have a responsibility for leading God's people. And God's Messiah came that you were waiting for and you missed it. You just dropped the ball, right? And so what does the resurrection show? That if the religious leaders aren't paying attention, they are now putting themselves against God. Now is the time of salvation. The religious leaders have to figure this out. They have a responsibility to lead God's people. If they really were following God and caring for God's people, they wouldn't have rejected Jesus. I mean, in rejecting Jesus, he's charging them, Peter and John, charging them about rejecting Yahweh. You know, you looked at Jesus, you threw him away, you thought he was not important, now he's the cornerstone. Now he's the most important piece. What are you going to do? And lastly, I think Peter and John confirmed the religious leaders' deepest fears. For this, go to verse 10. Look down at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. What is their intention? Everyone's going to know. That's what we're doing. Let it be known to you. Let it be known to all of religious leaders. They're thinking in their heads, this isn't going to stop. This is going to keep going. But why? There was a lot of options that the apostles had. Why, why, did they, why didn't they duck? Why didn't they dodge? Why did they, they literally take this train and they go right into conflict, right towards collision? Because Peter and John fully understood the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because here's the deal, guys. All of us know that death is coming for all of us. And yet for one man, death slipped. I think that's good news. That if there is the potential that the biggest problem facing all of us can be addressed. Guys, this is great news. All of us have a death problem. Jesus gives us the solution. If we look to him, we can be saved. And the reason that we die is because we are guilty before God. And so if Jesus has risen from the dead, that means that God has also dealt with our sin problem. We can be forgiven. But how? If God's people are witnesses, if they tell everyone. I mean, just think about the implications of verse 12. Look down with me. And there is salvation in no one else. 
And for there is no other name unless under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, implication. If people don't know this name, there is no salvation. Think about the people, millions, billions of people around the world who will live their entire life without even knowing someone who believes in Jesus. Right? If this gospel doesn't get to them, they are dead. Guys, this is the implication. Because if salvation is only in Jesus' name, then the apostles must speak. If the apostles don't speak, then the people won't be saved. And today, if salvation is found only in Jesus' name, friend, you must speak. You must tell. I mean, do you understand the implications of this verse? This verse, this passage, tears back all of the facades that we carry around today all the Photoshop, and all the makeup. And it reveals a much deeper problem. Every person in this room, every person in Winder, Lawrenceville, Tequila, Georgia, is a morally responsible person. And they have a problem. It is called a death problem. It is coming. It is outside of your control. So your friends, family, kids, Boss, coworker, neighbor, that guy at Kroger, that Starbucks person, that loyal customer of yours, everyone has a problem that they cannot control. One day they are going to die. And if they don't acknowledge Jesus, they are going to die only a sinner. And if people don't in their lifetime come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, friends, they're toast. One of the most neglected doctrines in the church today is the doctrine of hell. Jesus spoke most about. Friends, if people don't come to know Jesus one day before God's throne because they didn't give God the honor and the glory he deserved as creator and Lord, he will say, guilty. And to judgment you go. But right now, friends, is the time of salvation. Right? So how can your friends, family, kids, coworkers, boss, neighbor, Kroger worker, Starbucks person, gas person, how can they come to these things to be true? By you telling them. You must speak. You must take that conversation and bend it in a way that it would not otherwise go. For a moment, let me just ask you. Does your life reflect that your priorities are the same priorities of Scripture. If, you, if this life is a moment and there is sin and there is salvation and there is judgment, do you understand what this means for everyone in your life? Just tear back the facade. I mean, I fear that many of us will realize that if we look back in our lives, the things that consumed our attention the things that filled our minds, the YouTube videos, the, 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 all the different games that we spend time playing, all these different hobbies, all the treasure that is just destined for fire, all the money that we're not going to be able to take with us. Many of these things, guys, are a complete waste of our time. And if the thing that's most important about, that's most important, engaging with others for the state of their eternal soul the maturing of saints, heavenly rewards. Friends, friends, we can miss it. We can miss everything if we're not paying attention. Friends, if Jesus is truly risen, then there is salvation for everyone who believes. But it's only for those who believe and only for those who hear. And the time of repentance is short. If you truly love your neighbor the way that Jesus commands us, then you should be concerned about their greatest good, their spiritual good, their eternal good. Friends, if Jesus is risen from the dead, we have good news. But to share it, you must speak. Now, it's probably safe to assume that the religious leaders were not anticipating the responses of Peter and John. Look down at verses 13 and 14 with me. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated 
common men, they were astonished. (laughs) And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's an important text because there's something very important happening there that you need to note. What are the options for the religious leaders? Repentance. Brokenness. The Messiah has come and we've missed it. Friends, we've made a mistake. Yes, there's salvation. Come, believe, find life. Guys, this message is for everyone in that room. But as they watch God's saving power among God's people, what do their hearts do? They harden. They're watching God's word. They hearts, their hearts do not beat for joy over the news that's coming. They are not overjoyed, but rather they reject, they harden, and they are spiritually blind to what's happening right in front of them. And they move to protect their power and to keep God's people. Think about this. God's people, they here take God's people and keep them in the dark about what God has done. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You see this man, he's healed, can't deny it. Great things happening. Yeah, that's cool. God's probably here doing something, but this can't go further. You just need to catch all the absolute here. Guys, they aren't beating around the bush in what they want. We cannot deny it in order that it may spread no further. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone. Not speak or teach at all. Peter, John, you're probably great guys. See what you've done. It's good work. But this can't continue. It has to stop now. Friends, the apostles have been canceled, as some would say. Religious leaders have thrown down the gauntlet. They're standing tall. Remember, guys, Peter and John know who these men are. They know what they are capable of. Jesus' condemnation is forever stitched into their memory. They know what could happen. And what do they do? Verse 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. It's important to note that at the end of verse 20, they, Luke records them using the most emphatic negative. We cannot stop. We are not going to stop. We are going to speak. Religious leaders, stand down. No more. This is done. Apostles, no. We're not going to please you. We will stand. We will not stop until every person has heard and seen. It's a battle of wills. Religious leaders step up. Apostles meet it. Back down. No. Friends, because Jesus lives, we must stand. Point two. Because Jesus lives, we must stand. Friends, the Christian message comes to us with a few central core convictions. And then this text has already given us one of them, hasn't it? That Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone will be saved. They will not hear this message unless we speak. So then we must speak. But also, think about this. Where is Jesus? Guys, he's exalted. He's at the right hand of the Father. Jesus now has all authority. Friends, if these things are true, and they are, Jesus demands our submission, our trust, our obedience, regardless 
of the consequences. So a central, another central conviction for you must be that regardless of the consequences, I am committed to pleasing God in my life and in my witness. And in believing these truths and in following Christ, you must be prepared for when others will challenge you. Because you have to recognize that this claim challenges one of the central problems in every person's heart. Because every person walks around as if they are Lord and ruler of their lives. And we come to the message and we say, you're not ruler, Jesus is. Guess what? They're not going to like that. And that means they're not going to like you. Friends, the Christian life is marked by an evangelistic and disciplinary confrontation. If they don't like our message, they will not like us. They may threaten us. They may have legitimate power to do things against us. They will do everything that we can, but we must be ready to commit to the discipline of confrontation and perseverance to the pleasure and glory of God. Because guys, to please God means that sometimes you need to be ready to stand. On March 1st, Chris Poluski, the president and chief executive of Bethany Christian Services, this is the largest evangelical adoption and foster care agency in, in America. He made this announcement via email. We will now offer services with the love and compassion of Jesus to the many types of families who exist in our world today. We're taking an all-hands-on-deck approach where all are welcomed. Ruth Graham from the New York Times clarified the intent here. Bethany Christian Services would begin to provide adoption services to LGBTQ families, placing children with Christian, under Christian conviction into adoption in these homes nationwide, effective immediately. Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons, who's a fellow with the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center of American Progress, commented, to use a Christian terms, this is good news. For too long, the public witness of Christianity has been anti-this, anti-that. Today, the focus is on serving children in need. Now, there's lots of ways that you could dissect this. I don't have time to go into all of it about all just the terrible implications for evangelicals or for a family in marriage or for the kids. But I want you to make, catch a very important point here. Think about this. This move only makes sense in light of the Equality Act, which is something that's sitting on the Senate floor right now, which is going to try to extend protection under the Civil Rights Act, um, not only to base upon, it's, it's all about you know, protection of people who are discriminated, but now to gender identity and all these different things, which would fundamentally reshape the landscape of a lot of, of America, and then for, for people who are Christians in particular, but as the LGBTQ movement discontinues its, its walk, you need to recognize that more and more Christians are going to capitulate on a biblical understanding of sexual morality under the, tolerance, uh, under the banner of tolerance or under wanting to continue their ministry footprint wherever they are. But here's an important question. Like, why would a Christian organization even, need to f- even feel the need to make this change? Just think about it. Is it because LGBTQ couples don't have anywhere else to go to adopt kids? No. I mean, there are plenty of places where these couples can go if they really want to adopt children. And what's the problem? It it fundamentally points to a fact that there are many people in our culture today who can't even tolerate the possibility that someone may stand against them on moral issues. And so when parachurch organizations like Bethany Christian Services or other ones, they feel the cultural pressure from the world saying that your existence or this policy is a threat to many people today. This is not safe. Your stand against this is oppressive. But don't miss the implications one bit. If for many people in the world today, your beliefs about marriage, your beliefs about sin, your beliefs about hell, beliefs about salvation in Jesus alone, verse 12, are not acceptable. 
And a time may be coming when you must be silent. I feel like I've, I've heard this line somewhere. It's, it's almost like verse 17. It must spread no further among the people. Let us warn them not to speak anymore to anyone in this name. But friends, if we can't talk about sin, which we're being pushed to do, then why is salvation necessary? What are we saved from? And when things like homosexuality or or transgenderism, which I can't go into today, but just throwing it out there, when they're psychologized out of moral responsibility, I mean, how will people understand the nature of true repentance? And if moral responsibility for sin continues to be excused as, you know, that's just an illness, that's just bad rearing, that's the consequences of society, how will people understand their need for a savior? Friends, sin issues are gospel issues because without a clear understanding of sin, you don't understand the gospel and its necessity and its provision and God's love. And so if the gospel is ever at stake when it is when sin issues are becoming debatable, we must be willing to stand. And friends, this is a conviction that some of you guys have to settle before the heat comes. As I can promise, almost guarantee it, that your employer would probably find, like to find someone else to do your job than have to deal with any mess that you may cause. Here are some things you have to figure out. What is sin? What is marriage? What are we saved from? Why is salvation necessary? And then for you, are you ready to please God? Are you ready to stand? There's an important question that also we need to have in the back of our minds too. Why is there ever any opposition to the gospel? I mean, honestly, why do people hate this message? It's the greatest message ever. Free free forgiveness at Jesus' death. You know, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation, believe, trust. Why? Why is there conflict? Because every generation seems to just shuffle who is the greatest threat to Christians, right? Acts 4, it's the religious leaders. Where are they? Do you see any religious leaders out today? And then it was the Romans. Even in my own lifetime, it was the new atheists, and now it's the social justice person who's running around out there. But all of these are just little pawns that are being swapped out in a much larger game. Because the battle with the Pharisees and the religious leaders is not ultimately physical, guys, but it's ultimately spiritual. Because any time that you find someone who's actually willing to stand against the gospel, you know, look them in the eyes, recognize that in those eyes are the eyes of a serpent. Why is there so much opposition to the gospel? Because we live in a world where there are powers at B that hates the fact that God is rescuing sinners from the evil one and from sin and all these different things. And so the church work is not without conflict. Guys, these are just pawns. 50 years, they'll be different. 40 years behind us, different. All just pawns because there are powers at B that hate the gospel, hate salvation, want to keep people in chains. So our conflict is not actually with people, even though there are words that come out of people's mouths, but our conflict is with sin and the kingdom of darkness. Because we are in the ministry of reconciliation. Because what we want is we want people to be freed from sin and slavery to sin. We want people to be brought back into right relationship with God. So anytime that we stand, we're actually playing a very important role when, as people are being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and back to the kingdom of light. But for us to play our part, guys, we must be willing to speak must be willing to speak of Christ, and we must be willing to stand in the gap for those who oppress us, those who oppose us, so that through our word and through our witness, people may come home to Jesus. Friends, for us to be faithful, we must be willing to speak. We must be willing to stand. In verse 12, we see the religious leaders threatening Peter and John further. In verse 12, Peter and John, oh sorry, verse 23, 
Flip on over verse 23. We see Peter and John returning to their friends, probably those in their local church, in order to share what has happened. Peter and John now know where the religious leaders stand. This is the first conflict in a long line of conflicts in the book of Acts. They've barred their teeth. They know what is now going to cost them. And if they're going to be representatives, they're going to have to stand. And to do that, they're going to need help. So the last thing that they do is that they pray. And if we are going to represent Jesus, guys, we need to pray. (laughs) I think there's a common uh, misrepresentation out there today. It's really easy for us to look at those Christians who are really natural or really bold in sharing the gospel and being like, wow, look at that guy. He's amazing. I I could never do that. God just made him so for that ministry. What if you talk to anyone who's in that, whether frontline works or ministry, counseling, discipleship, you can walk up and be like, man, like, I, I could never do that. That's way too hard. <laughs> but if you talk to all of those individuals, you actually realize that, no, it's, it's not very easy at all. It's actually very difficult each time they step out, out into it. I mean, it gets better with practice. It's better to be well-skilled at something than not. But is it ever easy to just walk up to a stranger and tell them about Jesus? Is it ever easy to, you know walk up to a brother and sister in Christ and confront them over sin? Is it ever easy to get up in front of people and talk? Like this thing I'm doing? Ever easy to do counseling? Ever easy to do discipleship? Ever easy to do evangelism? Lead a class? You know? Help with worship? Thank you for those who helped earlier. Really good. We really appreciate that. But do you, do you think that the people in these ministries often feel over their heads? Yes all the time. And so while people may be particularly skilled at ministry, guys, I feel like there's a bubble that I need to pop. Many times, the difference between those who engage in ministry are not the unqualified versus the qualified, or those who are skilled or unskilled. But guys, sometimes it's the difference between the obedient and the disobedient. Which is why the last step that the apostles do here is that they come and they pray for boldness because the task is far too weighty. The stakes are way too high. Our flesh is way too weak. And we are too double-minded that without God's power and help, guys, we can't do anything. Let's look at verse 29. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servant to continue to preach your word with all boldness. Father, you are so good. Your cause is so great, but I am so weak. I cannot do this. Father, there are real people coming against me, so please just give me boldness to be able to stand and to preach and to do what I can never do apart from you. Friends, let's look at this prayer really briefly. Verse 24, starting there. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness, all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love this prayer because he actually quickly puts four foundational truths that really help us in this type of ministry. Let me point out four things really briefly about this passage. He first begins by saying, Sovereign Lord. This is, this is a, a word that appears assigned to God a few times within the New Testament, but it's emphasizing God's absolute control over the situation. How do they begin? Who's in control? Not the religious leaders, 
not the people we face today, not the person at work or at home. The person in control is God. Sovereign Lord, you are in control. Second, God is the one who made everything, the one who made heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. What are the people that are against the apostles? What are the people that are against you? Friends, people that just God has made. He holds their life in his hands. Third, they help the, he uses Psalm 2 in order to help them to direct the, act, the, direct the nature of the confrontation appropriately. So it's interesting, go down to verse 26. He's using Psalm 2 to make the point that the people are not raging against the, the apostles or the early church, but they're actually raging against the Lord and against his anointed, another word for Messiah. And so even as they're sitting there with the religious leaders, they know that they're not actually the real object of conflict. It's actually God, which helps them to realize that whatever happens, you know, it's not us being persecuted, but God and that God will avenge himself since no one can persecute God. And like Paul, they may find themselves saying, why are you persecuting me? And then verse 28, he ends by talking about God's providential control. If you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus' death was under the absolute control and sovereignty of God, which means that any suffering that we face, friends, is also under God's complete control. Where do they go to? God's absolute sovereignty and control. And then they make three prayer requests. Verse 29, pay attention, Lord, notice. Give me boldness. You keep working. Let's go. And in verse 31, the Lord provides. Amen. And they keep going. Friends, if you are going to speak and stand, please pray. It's going to be necessary because there are times you're going to feel out of your head and, they're going, and prayer is what helps us to really push into God as we do things that are way too, greaty, way too great and heavy for us but not too great for our God. And let me also just point one final thought in passing, thought in passing. Just think about this, that they're praying corporately again. Friends, if you're struggling with confrontation or with what the Lord's calling you, Please pray with other Christians. It'll be good for you. So friends, the Christian life is a life of confrontation. As Christians, we're called to speak, we're called to stand, and we're called to pray. Maybe some of you are terrified by these thoughts. Maybe you're trying to think through an opportunity that's been digging into your soul. Maybe I've planted something in your head. I would never do that. Uh, but I'm wondering if, if you are dealing with what this will cost you, right? What will it cost you? What happens if I speak out more? What happens if I do this new ministry more? What happens if I even step into a new position of leadership or opportunity at Harbin's? I bet at some point the one thing you're going to run into is just the fear of conflict and the fear of confrontation. You don't want to risk the failure of falling on your face, and you may. But guys, is the reward greater than the risk? Yes. Let me give you one more picture from this text. Go back to verse 4. Peter and John are bold in proclaiming the gospel, right? What happens to them? Opposition and conflict. And even later in the book of Acts, guys, we're going to see people tortured. We're going to see people killed. But are Peter and John, guys, the only characters in this story? No, friends, neither are you. You know what you would see if you expanded the camera? We don't know how many people were saved, guys, but it was like Peter and John, we know a few verses earlier it was 3,000, then it was 5,000. That means that while Peter and John were in the line of conflict, you had about 1,000 or 2,000 people who went home and were changed forever. Wife. I've heard the greatest news today. I witnessed a miracle. The Messiah has come. We don't need those rituals anymore. We don't need those sacrifices. Jesus, why? We don't have to do anything. He's done everything that we need. We can be saved. We have the promise of eternal life. 
Nothing will be the same. What about the lame man? My legs are healed. Not only have I been healed, I've been saved. What about people today? My marriage, it's fixed. My addiction is broken. My guilt and shame are gone. My depression is lifted. But not only this, but my life will never be the same. While Peter and John's life hung in the balance, guys, others were just beginning. Peter and John were able, willing to lay down their lives so that others could be reconciled to God and experience salvation. They were willing to die to themselves and stand in the gap. What about you? And Peter and John aren't just standing in the gap for, you know, themselves. Or, they're standing in the gap for the early church. What example would it give if they backed down? What else is going to be required? Friends, we're here looking at this example of faithfulness. They must have had the younger saints in mind, those who were not ready to stand for themselves. Friends, what are you willing to do? For some of you, I've had the conversation about potentially serving as an elder. I'm talking to you. You know. Harbin's in the future is going to need men who are willing to stand in the gap for the health of the church and the care of its sheep. And are you willing to stand like Peter and John so that others can be saved and so that God's flock can be taken care of? Are you willing to stand so that others can live? Friends, this ministry that God has given to all of us, we're called to be witnesses. This ministry has the potential to be costly, but guys, if we understand the resurrection, we have nothing to lose. Eternity is ours. So let us speak, let us stand, let us pray, so that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead, others may be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are so weak. Father, we are so fragile. And you call us to do incredible things. And yet we know that because eternity is ours, we have nothing to lose. And everything to gain as we participate in your eternal joys. So Father, as we have heard this word, may we be stirred to recognize the great need out there, the need in here. And may you push us to speak, stand, and to pray so that Christ may be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.